we've been going through the book of Exodus, and now that we get into now that we get into the Ten Commandments, we're going to take one Sunday per commandment, which I think is going to be a really good thing for us because to see each one, to see why God's saying what He's saying, to see how it affects each one, and most importantly, how we violate every one of them. And so, first question I want to ask before we get into it is, and I want I want an answer back from you. Um, so if you want this sermon to go quicker, then give me an answer quicker. Don't wait. Why are you here? Not here today, but why are we here? Or what is the purpose of our existence? Anybody? Worship God for his glory. Perfect. A lot of times it's to glorify him or to worship him, which is worship to God. And so we see through scripture and through God's word that all of mankind, we are created to worship. And every person that's ever been on this earth and every will be is going to worship something. And that something should be the one that created us, the one that owns us, the one that bought us. And so we're going to, um, we're going to, I want to use a little analogy before we, before we dive into the passage and the application that this brings us. Um, so the next slide, I believe, is some pictures. So this morning, as, as Caleb read, God says, I am the Lord your God. And he says, I'm the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And when we look at it inwardly to ourselves, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the world and out of the bondage of sin. Like, you shall have no other gods before me. So he's our creator. He's who we should be listening to because we, were, we are designed to worship and if we look at a couple of these pictures real quick, I won't spend time. I like racing and I like cars, so I could talk about this for a while, but we won't. What I want to draw attention to is, is in the top left is the beginning of a race. This particular race is a 24-hour race, and so it's endurance. There's different classes of cars, and some of these are the highest technology cars made. The top right picture is, is, is a car that is so full of technology and the guys that drive these cars are race car drivers. That's what they're made, that's, that's who they're, that's their talent, their gifting, that's their passion. If that guy gets in that car and wants to race because that's what he loves to do, but he doesn't communicate with you see the bottom right picture. That is a screen of the engineers, the guys that are back at the pit, and they have all the data for this car. They know the temperatures of everything. They can adjust things on the car. You see the, the left bottom left picture is the cockpit area. The driver has some settings, but he doesn't adjust settings unless the engineers tell him to 
adjust them. And if that driver drives on his own, he probably won't even finish the race. And there's rules that, there's rules and things that the engineers and builders and team tells the driver, like, do this, don't do this, because it's the best for the whole team, it's the best for, it's the only way you're gonna finish the race. And so there's a lot of applications we could go on with that. I won't spend the time to do that, but I think you get the point is, is that just like the race car driver has made the race, if he doesn't listen to the team orders and the ones that are in charge, their whole goal is, is to win the race. And when we look through these Ten Commandments, and everything that God has asked, it's not. We don't want to look at him as, as him having a heavy fist. He's like, you're created to do these things. And your life will be fulfilling. And it will bring what you've created to do if you do these things. These are good things. These are, these are things that he wants to bring to our attention. So, lastly, the other reason that I really like race cars is, is they're not idle. They like to go fast. So that's my dad's joke for the morning. So, no, I have to watch cars and racing because that can be an idol. We can go to the next slide then. So the sermon title this morning is Finding the Source. And we want to do two things today. We want to find the source of our sin. And then we'll wrap it up by finding and worshiping the source of grace, mercy, and redemption. And like we mentioned this morning with in worship there at the last, how like we're looking at the old covenant and we're going to see how we violate what God has asked. And praise God that the new covenant came and so that we can, when we confess, repent, that turns back to worship to God where we violated him. So Luther says that in order to that if we violate any of the second through tenth commandment, we have violated the first one. Because all the rest of them, if we violate any of the rest of them, then we, there was another God in our life, a small God in our life, that we did that. So we violate those. Tertullian says, if we can go to the next slide, Tertullian was born in 155, so like 120 years after Christ was here. And this was fascinating to me. Um, because he says, similar to what Luther says, but he brings it around even more. The principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world, the whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry. For although each individual sin retains its own proper feature, although it is destined to judgment under its own proper name also, Yet they all fall under the general heading of idolatry. All murder and adultery, for example, are idolatry. 
for they arise because something is loved more than God. Yet in turn, all idolatry is murder, for it assaults God, and all idolatry is also adultery, for it is unfaithfulness to God. Thus it comes to pass that in idolatry all crimes are detected, and in all crimes, idolatry. I know that's a lot there, but to, to sum it up, it's I have not realized how deep idolatry is embedded in our hearts. The sins that we often see on the surface is just a manifest, it's still a sin, like it's, it's a sin in itself, but it's a manifestation of idolatry that's in our lives. And the question I, that I thought of um, through going through this, like, how do you feel if I say you're a sinner? If we're, if, I mean, it's one of the truths that we know, we kind of, and we can maybe get to the point where we kind of accept it. We don't even feel kind of the weight of just what that means. But how does it feel if I say, every one of you is an idolater? When I ask myself that question, it's like, hmm, wow, um, not that sin. Like, maybe some, and it just feels different. And I feel like one of the things that has been happening because the Pharisees did it's from the beginning of time, but we don't want to see the depth and the source of where our sin comes from. And it's any any idol is something that we lift up higher than God. We often try to treat the symptom. So maybe we have um, maybe I say, well, I'm struggling with anger right now. So we try to or stress and instead of finding the source of our anger we we need to we need to find the source of it not just say okay this is a sin but we need to find the source of where that is coming from we're often blinded and um, it's easier to put a band-aid on than to have surgery at times most idols are a good thing that God created that we elevate above God. And Paul says in Romans 1 that we are prone to worship the created and not the creator. All creation is good and comes from God. We know that from Genesis where God creates each day and he creates and he says it was good. So everything that is around us is created by God. And so in, if it's used the way that God created, it's a good thing. So when we go, when we think about the Israelites here, when God's laying this out to them and the Ten Commandments, we know not long ago they were, they were in Egypt and all the plagues were happening. And before the last plague, God tells Moses to tell the people, Go and ask of your neighbors to give gold, silver. Basically, they got all the riches and wealth that Egypt had. And it was something that God even asked them to do. 
And we find that as soon as these Ten Commandments are read, and what do they do? They take all the gold and silver that was given to them from the Egyptians, and they melt it down into a golden calf. And it's the gifts of God that we make small gods of. We can have, we can, they can be our family, our health, our work, our spouse, our homes, our cars, sports, hobbies, children, or not children. Anything that we get fulfillment or completeness of other than God, and that can even be ministry. If that's our identity, that's an idol. And I think I want to encourage all of you, like just over the next few days and week, just to think about the depth of idolatry and how all these things can be good things. Everything we have is a gift. And I want to be careful with this statement, with compassion. But if we're still alive, there comes a point where our life should move past losing a gift of God. And I want to say that with compassion because we will always have grief, whether it's something physical that I'm more pertaining to a spouse or a child. There will always be a loss. And Jesus grieved when Lazarus died. There's not, that's a good thing. But if we're alive and we find ourselves that our state of our heart is just in constant grief for a long period of time, then search your heart and pray about it. I'm not going to call it an idol because I can't do that. But I'm just saying everyone search their heart. Because it's a, it's something that I haven't walked in them shoes. But I'm just, when we think about things like that, when we, when we lose something, and now I'm talking about something, whatever it may be, if, if there's sadness or sorrow, let's check our heart. It's an indicator. So this next part that I want to go through is this comes from a man named Richard Keats and he did a series on idolatry and came across it a little while ago and it spoke to me enough that I, I wanted to share it with you because I think it helps it helps identify some of these things in our hearts and in our lives. But he says that there are source idols and surface idols. And the, some of the questions we can ask ourselves when we're wanting to identify idolatry in our heart that separates us from the worship that God deserves. Go through a few of these questions. What do you worry about the most? What if you failed or lost it? How would that make you feel? What do you use to comfort yourself when things go bad or get difficult? What do you do to feel better? 
what preoccupies you? What do you daydream about? What makes you feel the most self-worth? What are you the most proud of for what you want to be known? What do you lead with in conversations? Early on, what do you want to make sure that people know about you? What unanswered prayer makes you really question your faith or trust in Christ? What do you really want out of life? What would make you happy? And what is your hope for the future? Those are just a few questions that we can ponder. So the surface idols is things that are defined as those things that are easier to spot. So they're, like the word says, they're closer to the surface. And it's usually an offshoot of something less observable in our lives. Some of those might be image idolatry. I have meaning by the way I look. Or helping, I have meaning by the need of me. People need me, I'm a helper. And you'll notice that, a lot, that all these things are good things. It's good to, it's good to be a helper. Dependence, I have meaning if there's someone to keep me safe. Or work, I have meaning in my ability to get things done. So these are some of the surface things that are much easier to point out. But if we get to the source, the source items of our heart, there's, they're much harder to spot. And it could take a, a lot of time, but they drive all the other idols. And the four source idols that Richard lays out is number one, comfort, number two, approval, number three, control, and number four, power. So he, he presents that those four things are the source of all the rest of the idolatry in your heart. And then the, I'll go through this little chart here that kind of helps identify just to get our minds thinking and you might think, oh, that, I struggle with that or I struggle with that one or you might end up feeling like I did that I think I have like a, um, I think mine's like a casserole of all of them. It's like stew crock pot of everything, but if you seek power, which is success or influence or winning, and there again, success, influence, like we can look the way God's designed those things are good things. So let's not forget these are good things, but we turn them into something else. The price that you're willing to pay is being burdened and being the sole responsibility. Your greatest nightmare is often humiliation. People around you often feel used. And your common problem emotion is anger or frustration. Because things aren't going the way we want them to go. If we seek approval or affirmation, love, relationships, the price we're willing to pay is, is less independence, our greatest nightmare is rejection. People around us often feel smothered. And our common problem emotion is fear. If you seek comfort, 
or privacy or lack of stress, freedom. The price you're willing to pay is reduced productivity, your greatest nightmare is stress or demands. People often around you feel neglected, and the common problem emotion is boredom or laziness. And the last one, control. If we seek control or self-discipline, certainty, or standards, which those can be good things again, the price we're willing to pay is loneliness. And our greatest nightmare is uncertainty. And people often around you feel condemned. And our common problem emotion is, is worry or anxiety. And Matt Chandler preached a sermon on this. Used the chart that I just used. And so it was kind of funny what he said. And I'll share it with you. But it's his. It's his. It's what he said. He said, um, you might be sitting here saying, well, I'm bored, and I'm angry, and I'm really stressed about it all. Like, it's just like, and that's what I'm like. We can, I think at times we fit ever. It's not like my problem is control. My problem is power. I think each and every day those are going to change around. And the whole goal here this morning and going through this, I know this is a little bit different than what we're used to doing as a sermon. I feel like it's heavy with application. Um, is, is to see how much, like I said earlier, how much we fall short of what God's created us to do. And what do we do with all that then? Like, what do we... We know how much we fall short. And I think the thing is, is we need to not... We want to see the depth of it. But then we have to find the source of the grace, forgiveness, and redemption, and the mercy that He gives us. And so we don't want to stay in the depths of the depths of our sin, but we do want to look at it in these next nine weeks after this week, we'll be able to look at each and every one to a greater depth, I hope, than what we've ever looked at before, because it's it's imperative that we, to know Him more, we need to know how much we need Him. And one of the, um, well, before I get to that, if we continue, when we continue to walk through Exodus, we're going to see in even the rest of the Old Testament and even further that no, no person, no one, everyone violates every one of these and gets consistent up until the time that Jesus comes. And when he came, everything that he did was for the Father. It wasn't for him. It was all for the Father. And he did that to be the perfect sacrifice for us. So I think a good way to um, a good way to kind of wrap up why that I feel like we should look at the depths of our sin as deeply as possible is in Luke chapter 7. 
read uh, verses 36 to 47. This is when Jesus was with one of the Pharisees in their house eating. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought a flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known him, known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one of the 500 denarii, another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she had wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And I think we're often tempted to think that I'm not as bad a sinner as this guy right here. We do exactly what Simon was doing. And if we're open and honest with ourselves each and every day as we walk through the rest of the Ten Commandments, the beauty is that when we see how much of a sinner, like if I have idolatry in my life every day, and I would have never guessed that until I started looking, looking at it more. And I pray that you can do the same in the
it's changing. He wants it. It'll change. It'll be growth in our lives. That's why we need each other. I need you to point out that idolatry in my heart and vice versa. And we need to be surrounded by a team of people because the Spirit works through each and every one of us. So I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll have a benediction. <coughs> Father God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that we can even call you Father uh, as we look at your law and how we see that Father, we can't do it. We cannot fulfill the things that you ask. But Father, as much and deep as, as deeply as we say that, Father, we, we, we thank you that through your Son, Jesus, that we can, we, that his righteousness covers over our sins and that we, when we confess and repent, oh, that there's forgiveness and we're no longer against you but we're sons and daughters and joint heirs so father oh, we ask that your spirit would work deeply in our hearts that it would unveil the darkest corners the depths of it so that we can confess we confess father that we have we have held so many gods above you. Father, it's many times it's the gifts that you've given us. Father, help that to be help us to have a desire in our heart that we would that we would always be grateful for the gift, but to realize that the gift is a gift and it's from you. And that we would that our true heart's desire would be to worship you and you only. So Father, give us courage, give us hope and peace as we go through the next week or the however long that we're here that we can um, share the joy of you and who you are to us. We love you and ask this in Christ's name.